Okay, so are you sure? Okay, well, we're starting 10 minutes late, so I can take off then. Is that what you're saying to me? Yes. Here we go. October the 7th, 2018, lecture discussion number 39. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback, just a small amount. Might try to take that back some. Let me repeat it. October 7th, 2018, lecture discussion number 39 on the book of Joel. I have been sick this week. Uh, Lori is gone. The, we have a whole bunch of people out sick today. So that means we're in chaos. And if you were watching us try to get started and you couldn't because you couldn't because we couldn't get started, then you would know. So here we go again. We have backed the bus up the past few Sundays. And uh, we are now poised to launch the bus down the road at the mountain hoping to dislodge some more pieces of gold. Keep in mind who is inside the bus and who's driving the bus. I just thought I'd pass that along. Unfortunately, as is known to those of you who have studied the Bible, the wise, I would call you, the gold of scriptures, the treasures, the jewels of scripture are encased, embedded in scripture. And I like to refer to it as concrete, six-sack mix, at number eight rebar, there'll be nothing to you, but guess what? Somebody will go, wow, he, he must have poured that once or a thousand times. So I'm pretending for you the metaphor, the allegory is this mountain of concrete, very thick, very strong, and we have to bust loose. And so that's what I'm trying to get you to understand. The bus, of course, that we have here, allegorically, has been damaged significantly. And the process, but we've loosened up some treasure, especially here in this current subject. So more slamming into the mountain is what the plan is. It's warranted. So assume your crash positions if you want to continue with this. To recap our current objective, which by design I obscure it, as you know, I think that's the right process. I do it on purpose. It's intentional. You know that. Not everybody does. The Internet uh, sometimes is caught by surprise. But the objectives are always uh, withdrawn so that you discover the objectives on your own. I don't want to cheat you out of it. And the goal is to define as much as possible right now what we're trying to do today. The objective today is to find as much as possible that is the aggregate in the sign of Jonah. Aggregate, concrete. I worked hard on that. It wasn't funny. It's never funny if you have to make it funny. But still, it was a lot of work, a lot of effort. Just thought you might want to know that I appreciate both of you that thought it was funny. Or even noticed it. <laughs> If you were of the notion that the sign of Jonah, and most people are, so don't feel bad, was restricted to three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. Most people think, most Bible students think, most Bible teachers believe that that's all that the sign of Jonah really is. And I would advise you that you may want to reconsider and expand uh, your parameters are just a bit. Let me put it this way. How much of the book of Jonah would you suppose is contained in the sign of Jonah? He's in the big fish, the great fish, three days and three nights. How many sentences is that in the book of Jonah? And obviously, the death of Jonah, the resurrection of Jonah, the repentance of Nineveh has to be in the sign of Jonah. 
What about the crimson scarlet worm? Uh, I'll write scarlet. I could write crimson, but I can barely say it, so that's why I chose scarlet. Doesn't matter as long as you know that red worm that is there is all throughout Scripture. You have the Rahab red rope. You have this red worm. This scarlet worm attaches itself to wood. So if you're in the sign of Jonah, you're looking for a, a red worm attaches, that's attached to, to wood. And it dies, this worm does, all of you know this, I've done it all for hundreds of times. It dies giving life, its offspring come in the red fluid that oozes out of it when it dies. And of course, you know, Christ attached himself to wood. All the time people ask me, why is Christ uh, a carpenter? Because he's attaching himself to wood. He's following Psalm 22.6. And so to say that the worm is obvious is itself obvious. Clearly, that's in the sign of Jonah. How about that poisonous gourd? It's a castor gourd. If you start studying castor, you'll find out in the Bible that it is a poison. So I have this poisonous castor gourd uh, that the worm kills. So the poisonous plant that came up in darkness dies in darkness. That is what Jonah 4.11 says. So I have a poisonous gourd that grows in darkness and dies in darkness. So is it evil? That's in the sign of Jonah. As you remember, as you know the story, Jonah was angry, very angry, that God wanted the Gentile Assyrians to be saved. He didn't want the Gentile Assyrians to be saved. He wanted them all dead in a horrible fashion. He hated them. So the hate of Jonah has to be the hating of the Gentiles would be better. There must be hate of Gentiles somewhere. In the sign of Jonah that we're trying to identify the totality of. And again, Jonah wanted all the Assyrians dead, none to be saved. And God wills that none should perish. And Jonah wanted the Assyrians to perish and the poisonous gourd to live. And you begin to see the juxtapositioning of all of these Real things, literal things that actually happened, however, they have extended meanings because God intended it. Maybe it might be best to remind everybody of the repentance of, (coughs) excuse me, of Nineveh. It's astonishing. Okay, here we go. Jonah 3, 5 through 10. This is, let me start at, uh, okay, that'll be a good place. 
So the people of Nineveh, Jonah cried out in verse 4, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh, a guy walked in, if you just took it like that and assume that's all that's there, which is always a mistake. But if you did, you would think, hey, a guy walks into a large, great city because it defines it as a large, great city and cries out yet in 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he does. Is that all he did? It can't be what he, all he did. Start figuring out what else must have happened here, because here's what happened from what, they, what the information were given. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Do you think that makes a lot of sense to you? A prophet, a Jewish prophet, walks into a city, says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh, who are these guys? These are Assyrians. We'll get into that in a minute. Proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. All of this, I don't put it on the list, but all of this is in the sign of Jonah. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Sign of Jonah. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. It's in the sign of Jonah. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell God, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not. Do it. And I hope you notice especially the decree of the king of Assyria. It's astonishing. It's amazing. What made him write that? We've got to remember, we've got to understand that the Assyrians at this time were what? Brutal killers of the Israelites. That's why Jonah hated them. Undoubtedly, they had killed and tortured and mutilated people he knew. Because they killed and tortured every Jew they could find. And mutilated them. Sadistic mutilators of Israeli prisoners. They were devoid of all evidence of humanity. And yet God sends to them a Jewish prophet. And when the Jewish prophet gets there, if you know the story and you do, he's dead. He's vomited up dead. He's decomposed. And he has a stench. Now, we're getting somewhere, aren't we? If you have been listening the last few weeks. And God says, arise. And Jonah was resurrected. And Jonah who hates these people, goes into Nineveh, and he, it's a three-day process. So the first question is, 
who saw Jonah vomited up? How many saw Jonah vomited up? Remember, you've got to figure out what caused these people to repent. How many saw Jonah? What's left of Jonah? How long has he been in that fish? You ever see anything he's been in a fish for three days and three nights? This is a big fish. He's got all those gastrical, gas, gastric juices, system, stomach uh, acids, all of that process. You have not just the decomposition of the body, but you also have the digestive processes at work here. Who witnessed it? How loud was this? Give me a decibel level. That'll come into play a little bit later. So, all right. He rises up. A Jewish prophet is surrounded by people who want to kill him immediately, and they see him vomited up. I can imagine. Put yourself there. You're watching. The fish comes up on the shore. That should be. It's got to be a large fish, doesn't it? And it vomits up a decomposed Jewish prophet. Now, they don't necessarily know it's a Jewish prophet at this time. He's indistinguishable. Just a mass of stinking flesh. Decomposed. Has to be. But then they hear the words, arise, and he stands up. What about him changed? Did his clothing get changed or he leave the, did God, what did God do? Give him a new suit, new suit, new shoes, hat? How'd it go? Clearly he is resurrected. What's he look like? He's a Jewish prophet and he's likely surrounded. What's the first thing they do? They probably run from him. So, so far so good. Now, what's he going to do? His job is to go to Nineveh. So he starts to go to Nineveh. How many people heard this? How far away? What's the decibel level? Does anybody get just what happened? How many Assyrian killers attempt to kill Jonah as he walked to the exceedingly great city? Jonah 3, 3 through 4. Called an exceedingly great city. That becomes important. I'll just put city down here. But it's, it's called exceedingly great. Just know that it's there. And here he is walking into the city. How many, at this point, what's he saying as he goes along? Do you think this is the first time? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Do you think that's the first time he said it? Said it once? Is that your view? How many times did he say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown? He's, as soon as he says that, he's identifying himself as who? A Jewish prophet. They try to kill him? What do you think? Were they successful? How long did they, did they hold a committee meeting? Did they plot? We got a guy coming in here telling us the city's going to be overthrown by God. What do we do with him? How much is he worth to us? Can we, can we sell him back to the Israelis with no eyes, no tongues, no ears, no hands, no feet? Because that's the process. 
How does a Jewish prophet survive a three-day walk through Assyrian territory into the king's city? And when you answer that question, you'll have gathered another piece of the sign of Jonah, which will become quite valuable when we're searching through the scriptures for the sign of Jonah, because the sign of Jonah goes through the Bible, as you would expect, and we have to find as many of them as we can. Now, they're all over the place in some sense in the Old Testament in different forms. In the New Testament, however, that's a difference, but we'll get into that as we go. I've been proposing confidently that there are three signs of Jonah in the New Testament. Lazarus is one. As you know, if you've been here, I say Lazarus is one. Jesus Christ himself is one. And then I have asked you, who's the third? And that's where we are. So I have Lazarus, Jesus Christ, who is God himself. Those are the first two signs of Jonah. And both of those are rejected by the evil, adulterous generation. Now, the evil, adulterous generation of Israel is clearly defined. It is that generation at the time that Christ was there physically. God is physically in front of this generation. And this generation is the is the part of Israel that rejects God when he's right in front of them on the basis that he is Evil are the source of evil or the origin of evil. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it requires a nation to do it. He says it's a generation. It's an evil and adulterous generation of a nation. And as I pointed out previously, there's other aspects of Israel that did not reject him. Clearly, they are not part of the evil, adulterous generation or nation. I have two groups distincted. Distinguished there. So where is this third sign of Jonah? If Israel rejected it twice, and they did, they rejected Lazarus, so they rejected Christ. Do they reject it again? Or does Israel follow the repentance of the king of Nineveh? So repentance... And I'll put the king here because he becomes pretty important too. Nineveh is given a call to repentance. That's what Jonah calls. He says, repent. It's clearly in, in his warning. Repent. He doesn't want them to repent. As you read the story, he goes up on the mountain, the poisonous gourd and all the rest. And he's just absolutely apoplectic that God has given these people. They don't deserve it. Oops. That is a typical attitude, right? Let those people die. They don't deserve it. That is a self-assessment issue. We are in a country that has a tremendous problem with self-assessment right now. Uh, you see the darkening of our country. You can't help but see it now. It's getting, it's accelerating. Rationality is disappearing. Uh, let me just say really fast here. We're going to get into uh, the definition of witnesses in this particular t- subject. Isn't it fascinating how uh, I happen to be exactly where I'm so lucky at this? Actually, I really am. (laughs) But uh, witnessing has come up. Witnessing is a scriptural structure. It is a biblical principle. All witnessing comes from the Bible. We have a nation that is just completely destroying the 
the foundational aspect that is witnessing. You are not a witness if you are not a witness. Does that make sense? It really is that simple. Just because you heard something from somebody who heard something from a guy that lived across the street from an uncle that has a three-legged dog whose next-door neighbor complained, that doesn't make you a witness. You're a hearer, not a witness. There's a distinction. And it's critically important in the Bible, and it's critically important in our jurisprudence system, but you would never know that now. But again, that's another foundational aspect that's biblical that's being destroyed, cast aside by those who wish to eliminate Scripture or eliminate the Bible from the nation that we live in. It's been going on in my whole lifetime. I go all the way back to the atheistic movement. I saw it happen. I saw the people that instituted the, uh, filed the lawsuits as a young man. I remember those people uh, who said that... uh, that the Bible had to be removed. It was the it was the book of language when I was a child. You read the Bible in school because one, it was true, and two, it was complex. Now it has been replaced by the simple. Okay, rant over. Nineveh is given a call to repentance, Jonah three four. Israel is given a call to repentance, Joel. 2, 12 through 17. Nineveh is given the Old Testament sign that was Jonah himself. Gentiles, killers of the Jews, again, merciless, terroristic, murderers of the people of God, are nonetheless saved by the very God they hate and despise. And conversion came to Assyria because of what Jonah did in the sense of what he presented. Even though he didn't want to present it, he was forced to present it. A decomposed man vomited up by a fish is called by God in a loud voice that probably tens of thousands, if not all of Assyria heard. That voice was loud. This Jewish prophet gets up and runs around saying Jewish prophet things. In the middle of of Assyria, they can do nothing about it. Can't be heard at all. And the king saw and heard. Just imagine what he saw and heard and what made him put out the issue, this decree of his. Man and beast. He covered man and beast in sackcloth. Those are mourning clothes. Cry mightily to God. Let man and beast. Don't let them eat or drink. Let everyone turn from his evil way and cry mightily to God. What do you think they cried? This is a God of Israel that he's crying to. This is a Syrian. What did those people witness? They got a witness. They witnessed a prophet of God come through their country. Let everyone turn from his evil way. The God of Israel, that's Jesus Christ in the flesh, as you know. Let everyone turn from his evil way. I asked the obvious question, is this going to happen in the tribulation? Who, what nation or what nation will repent from their evil way? Again, what is the evil way? 
in the Middle East? Who are the ones who are doing everything they can to kill every Jew they can find in the most horrifying way possible? Every Christian they can find. Who's doing that? Will God send to them the sign of Jonah? How many will repent? Will Egypt repent? Isaiah 19, 1 through 22 says yes. Egypt will repent. How about the Assyrians? Who are they today? The Kurds. Will they repent? Isaiah 19, 23 through 25 says they will. Will Iran repent? No. Iran will not repent. Jeremiah 49. Babylon will not repent. Saudi Arabia will not repent. The point is, yea, a point finally is that the sign of Jonah encompasses the entire book of Jonah. Duh. All of Jonah, what he wrote, is in the sign of Jonah. Duh, duh. It is not accidental, because it is never accidental. That that the order is... I have Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. There's an order here. Joel contains the tribulational call to repentance of an unbelieving nation of Israel. Amos reports that God will save the Gentiles. Jonah brings the Gentile Assyrian conversion to the sign that was Jonah. Joel connects to the Apostle John's book of Revelation. The fundamental purpose of John's book of Revelation, you know what it is. It's He is revealing that the absolute nature of Jesus Christ is infinite creator God. That's what he's doing. He's revealing that Jesus Christ is infinite creator God and that he's the judge of all things. It's John 1.3 and John 5.22. And the salvation of the nation of Israel comes in the tribulation. And it's quite similar to what happened in Nineveh. In fact, it's incredibly similar. But isn't it interesting that the Gentiles got the sign of Jonah before Israel did? In the sense that Jonah is Jonah. But in the New Testament, the the sign of Jonah comes to Israel. And, of course, as I said, Amos... Uh, prophesied this. This is what Paul said was given to him, was the salvation of the Gentiles. Because the Jews never believed the Gentiles would be saved. The Jews hate the Gentiles, especially at that time. They're not too fond of us now. Uh, They don't want the Gentiles saved in the time of the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated the Gentiles. That's why God dispersed them, because Israel as a nation refused to take the truth of God's mercy to the world. They said, let the world perish. We're not going to say a thing to those people. We got ours because we're Jews. They believe that they are genetic. They are saved by the genetics of their Jewishness through Abraham, which leads to the question of how much DNA is necessary to be Jewish. There is evidence that I have Jewish um, heritage in my extended family on my mother's side. Maiden name uh, is a derivative of Plunk. 
She actually they called it with a K. Who knows? But I know that doesn't matter. If I'm one one hundredth of a Jew, does that make me saved? We've got to do the math on this. Is there any monetary benefit to it? Can I get into a college? Well, I should have known that. Yes, sir. Well, I agree that that's absolutely true. Well, for you on the Internet, uh, Supper Dave, if he actually exists, is paying attention to the modern-day Middle East and noticing that these kinds of, of characteristics of the sign of Jonah are going on around us in some sense. And I think that is correct. And we'll get to the rest of that. Try not to get ahead of the yellow papers. There's an order to that. <laughs> Excuse me. So, John is saying he's tied to Joel. Joel is tied to repentance of the Jews. Jonah has the repentance of the Gentiles. Amos predicts it. We'll get to Obadiah as time goes by. Don't have time today. But the point being is that all of these are connected as you would expect. John is saying, listen, you've got to know, it's important that you know that Christ is absolute, infinite God at all times. There's no possibility he isn't. It is impossible that he isn't at all times. Uh, The church hardly believes that today. Revelation 3.16. So the salvation of the nation of Israel comes in the tribulation. Again, it's the sign of Jacob's troubles, not the sign of the Gentiles' troubles. The Gentiles in the time of Jacob's trouble will be troubled, but it isn't for them in the sense that it is to turn the nation of Israel to repentance. The Gentiles will be saved uh, not as nations, but as individuals. And God's nation of Israel will repent of their unbelief in contrast to the first and second signs of Jonah, which happened in John 11 and Matthew 12. Lazarus, and then God himself, Jesus Christ. You see, Lazarus shares with Jonah resurrection after decomposition, doesn't he? He has stench. He's called out by name. Loud voice. Very similar to Jonah. Lazarus also walked through the great city, Jerusalem. And he was seen there. And what did they, when they saw him, what did they want to do to him? Hunt him down and kill him. They hated him. But they couldn't kill him. They plotted to kill him. But yet he was not killed. As with Assyria, a nation's involved with Lazarus. It's it's Israel this time. Lazarus, therefore, was a corrupted, decayed, putrefied, dead body, restored to life by the voice of God in a loud voice by name, given by God himself. To the nation of Israel as a sign. That's Lazarus. That I could have said that and that'd be Jonah. There's some, there's some contrast because in contrast to Jonah, in Jonah's case, I have this absolutely amazing repentance decree from the king of Assyria. 
And this is called the, uh, historically, they cannot account for why Assyria stopped being this rampaging, murderous organization or nation. They just stopped. It's a parenthetical piece. Then they started up again when these people that, that repented died off. But they, the his, historical accounts, they actually say about it that, wow, it's inexplicable. And it wasn't a good time for Assyria because they didn't conquer or kill anybody. They weren't powerful. No, they were transformed and saved. We have a tendency to worship the violent. That is not how God thinks. So I have the contrast with Jonah and Lazarus. Jonah, even though he hated them, it resulted in that amazing decree uh, and the salvation of Nineveh. The rulers of Israel saw a decomposed, putrefied, dead body restored to life by the voice of God and rejected him. How great a sign is Lazarus? He's got to be every bit as equal to the sign of, uh, to the vomited dead fish guy. He gets called out of a tomb. He's so tight he can't, they got to unwrap him. The Gentile nation of Assyria repented and believed God. Israel did not repent and believe in the sign of Jonah when it was portrayed by Lazarus. Now, just to be fair, some object to Christ being a sign of Jonah. They, they say, wait a minute, it doesn't seem to fit here. Because um, he doesn't present himself resurrected to the rulers of Israel. And they're right about that. The problem, the first problem with this thinking is that Jesus said he was the sign of Jonah. I am the sign of Jonah. He actually said that. So maybe that might be, uh, how do I put it? Convincing. John, or I'm sorry, Luke 11:29 through 30. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. There's your warning. Quit seeking signs. It seeks a sign. Christ is saying this. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this evil generation. Add to that Matthew twelve thirty nine through 42. Christ calls himself the greater Jonah. I would say that's fairly definitive. But there are, as you can always expect in theological circles, protestants against every position. In spite of my overwhelming command of the argument. They will, they will fight me. Uh, Jesus also invokes the men of Nineveh, and all they got was Jonah. Israel gets the greater Jonah. As wonderful as Jonah was, as great as that was, it pales. Israel received the I Am, the Lord God of Almighty Himself. They got the I Am of Exodus, and they rejected Him. The Ninevites believed and were blessed with salvation. Israel, the evil, adulterous Pharisees and their followers were cursed. Matthew 23. Look at that. Read Matthew 23 sometime in your spare time and read what Christ says about these guys. It's, it's solemn. And the Ninevites 
who were saved by the sign of Jonah, they're going to be at the judgment of the evil and adulterous generation of Israel, testifying on Israel's testifying of Israel's great gift, guilt. Sorry, gosh. So try to imagine that scene. When this generation of Israel is in front of the great white throne, over there in the jury box are going to be the people of Nineveh, the king that wrote that, and the people that believed it. So will the queen of Sheba. She'll be there. That's what Christ said. When I judge you, here are the people that are going to be there. We'll get to that in the weeks to come, too. So, back to the question. Where is the third sign of a decomposed resurrection before the nation of Israel? I've given it away now, haven't I? You know where that is. But I should first interject again that Jesus Christ, Psalm 16:10, Acts 2:27, it's impossible for his body to decompose. Impossible. So again, the people go. When I say the people, those who disagree with me, I'm just so tempted to make a joke, but I'm not going <laughs> to. But I like make myself laugh. That's worth something. The people who disagree with me say, hey, wait a minute. He, he, Christ didn't show himself to the nation of Israel and he isn't decomposed. He did not show himself resurrected to the Sanhedrin. So that doesn't make him a sign. We'll give you Lazarus. We'll give you, you know, God Jonah, we got Lazarus, we'll give you those two. Notice that you cannot have a sign of Jonah without death, decomposition, three days, three nights, and resurrection. So there goes your Jonah in the whale playing pool, or darts, or whatever you have him doing. They'll say that Christ did not show himself resurrected to the Pharisees or the religious uh, council. And that might seem that way to them. To state the issue in another way, those who object to Christ as being consistent with Lazarus with respect to the sign of Jonah, in that Lazarus was seen by the Pharisees, in other words, Lazarus was given to the evil and adulterous generation, the nation, as a resurrected man, known by them to have been in a state of putrefaction, disintegration, that's what it is, uh, you give, give the decomposition process a great length of time, what do you get? Dust. You disintegrate. Genesis 3.19. The Pharisees did not doubt that Lazarus was resurrected. That's an important point to remember in the whole story. Had no doubt. Because if they, could, if they thought he did not resurrect, they wouldn't care about killing him. There's your first evidence. They knew for sure that he had resurrected. I want you to think about it. The religious leaders of the nation of Israel knew Lazarus's body was in an irreversible, lifeless, decomposing condition and yet was reversed 
That means the mind, the soul, the spirit of Lazarus are reunited with a restored body that had been in that state. And one would think that anyone who saw that and knew that was true, what would be the natural reaction? What would you expect people to react? How would, how would you think they would react? All people, we would think, would celebrate with joy, tears of hope. Death has been defeated. Not the Pharisees, and I'll tell you, not the people who see the third sign. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for showing up. I had to rely on Brady in the front row. Had to, because we couldn't figure out anything. We had to rely on TJ. We're not raising your salary. But we are tempted. Anyway, I'm glad you made it back. How's, how's mom? Okay. Did you bring pizza? Oh, food though. Okay. Just asking. You would think everyone who saw a man they knew was dead and decomposed, restored perfectly, Instantly, by the voice of God, would bring a celebration, but instead it brings a plot to kill Lazarus because mankind is insane. There's a madness, a darkness, a debasement. Anyway, what did Christ do that would qualify him as the greater Jonah besides his saying? So, as if we need something else, I know the discussion is nonsensical, but let's just blast away. I like blasting away. I find it soothing. At the death of Christ, the linen veil blocking the Holy of Holies was tore apart, wasn't it? Now, you know how thick and heavy that thing is? Research it. It's tore apart. God on the cross spoke in a loud, thunderous voice. Start looking up the meaning of the words thunderings in Exodus 20, 18 and 19. The thunderings is not like thunder that we hear in lightning. It is a, has a language-based meaning to it. So this loud voice of Christ comes out. Again, how many decibels from the cross? How many decibels when he yelled at Lazarus? How many decibels when he yells at Jonah? Here comes pizza. Just thought I'd let you know. In case some of you were thinking, hey, I can't hang on to the end of this sermon. i got to get out of here. I just hooked you for another three pages. <laughs> Utter darkness, earthquake, rock split. And, and out of the tomb, this is not a shock, is it? Came many what? Dead saints. And what do they do? That's right, they hang around. How long do they hang around before they enter Jerusalem? They wait for something. What do they wait for? Matthew 27, 52, 53. They wait for the resurrection of Christ. When the resurrection of Christ comes, then what do they do? They enter to, into the great city. Do I have to write it? Jerusalem. Appearing to many. So these people flood in. And I've presented Matthew 27, 52, 53 quite a few times. Usually asking the obvious questions. Did the Pharisees attempt to execute all of these people that came into the city of Jerusalem when they found out about them? How many were there? Did they hunt them down? Did they plot their deaths? How long had these resurrected saints been dead? 
How many is many? A thousand. Think of them. Uh, maybe ten thousand. How many did Christ pull out with his loud voice and send into the city after he resurrected? That loud voice of God does some pretty incredible things. I want to know how long they've been dead. Have you heard me ask that question over the years? Well, I'm answering it now. Kind of. You'll work it out. I've given you all the different views over the time. There's the David, King David view. There's What happened to these people? I've said to you that if it was King David and he came in, if this guy walked in here and said, hey, I just got resurrected, I'm King David, what would you do? You don't look like King David to me. Well, there's no photographs in those days. So, but if uh, if my father came in here, I would know him, and I would know he was dead. So how long had these people been dead? That voice hit them. Rock split, earthquake. People came out of the tombs, gathered, waited for the resurrection of Christ, then went into the great city. How many is many? In other words, what did Christ do? He buried the Pharisees in the sign of Jonah, didn't he? He flooded them. As with the lepers, Christ sent thousands of healed, cleansed lepers to the Pharisees. They'd never seen a healed leper in their lives. No one had ever seen a healed leper. And they were forced to do the Leviticus 13 cleansing provision. No one had ever done it. It's something that had never been done, Luke 4:27. No leper had ever been healed in Israel except Naaman, the Syrian. And then Christ comes and heals him by the tens of thousands and sends him to the Pharisees who now have this Leviticus 13 thing to do until they're completely swamped, which is his plan. He does the same thing here. He sends an avalanche of the signs of Jonah to the Sanhedrin, just in case you think he forgot to show the ruling nation, the sign of Jonah himself. It's how he does things. He overwhelms with evidence God does. Romans 1, 20 through 32. If you have a darkened, rejecting mind, it is willfully debased. It is chosen blindness. None will have an excuse. Okay, moving along, kind of, sort of. Terry raised her hand, told me I only had a few minutes. But I wrote down when I started, she came late. He doesn't know anything. Just pointing that out. Okay, some of you think that I'm way out of time here. She doesn't control me. Ha. Huh. Does anybody see her? She's gone now, so that's why I'm getting really aggressive. <laughs> no, pizza's still there. Hang on, we're on. I'm going to make it. Okay. The face cloth of Lazarus and the face cloth of Christ. Last few weeks I've been making the case that Jesus is attaching himself to Lazarus and Adam through the grave clothes, the garments of death. And that he, God, has emphasized the covering of his own face. God is covering the face of God. And God's face is a particular note in his scripture. Genesis begins with the face of the deep, Genesis 1-2. The face of the water, also Genesis 1-2. What's the difference between the face of the deep and the face of the water? 
I got two faces. I'm just asking. Genesis 1:29, face of all the earth. Genesis 2:6, the whole face of the ground. I got earth and ground. What's the difference between the face of the earth and the face of the ground? How many faces I got to work out here? Genesis 3:19, in the sweat of your face. That's the face of man. Genesis 4:14, surely you, referring to God. Cain saying this to God, surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face, the face of God. Jacob says in Genesis 32:30, after his wrestling with Christ, he says, I have seen the face of God or I've seen God face to face and my life is still I've been preserved. I didn't die. He names the place Peniel, which means Face of God. The point being, yea, another point, God has a face. The face of God is who? It's Jesus Christ. Jacob made that perfectly clear. Jesus Christ is the face of God. And Jesus Christ, the face of God, chooses to wrap his face. So now, that's that. why does he do that? He hides his face in the tomb. What's he doing? It cannot be accidental. It cannot be insignificant. This is the face of God hiding the face of God in the tomb. On his body that cannot decompose, cannot decay. Psalm 16.10, Acts 2.27. I'll help you along with this one. The face cloth, I've been calling it a face cloth on purpose because I deliberately obscure things. Do you remember me giving you that copy or that disclaimer at the beginning? It's not a face cloth in the sense of what you would say, oh, a face cloth. It's not a handkerchief, even though your Bible says handkerchief, because your Bible also intentionally obscures things. The people who, wrote, who translated it did not want to put what it really is. What is it really? I've lectured on this before, so somebody should be able to tell me what it is. Every Jew is buried with his prayer shawl. It's what they do. They're doing it today. They'll do it tomorrow. Lazarus would have one. Christ would have one. Jewish men are buried with their talent. So the question becomes... How did Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea get possession of the talent of Christ? Because they're the ones that wrap the face of God. Imagine that's your job. Been, you are going to wrap the face of God with his talent. Or is it his talent? What's the steps, the anatomy, the process of all of that? And if I'm right... And this is the talent of Lazarus. Why did Christ do this? What happened to the talent of Christ? Ooh, I can find the talent of Christ. I know exactly where it is. This one he folded. Why did he fold it? Why did John see it folded? Why did John go, resurrection? 
As soon as he saw that talent folded, he knew what it was. He knew Christ had resurrected. Besides the obvious connecting of himself to Lazarus and the sign of Jonah. And all of this leads us to Revelation 11. As you have all figured out, congratulations. I know you figured it out. Most of you have started to talk to me about it. Some of you I've helped a little bit. But most of you have done it on your own. And I am very proud of you. But this is for the internet audience as well and people who don't uh, follow it as closely. So here we are at 11.7 through 14 of the book of Revelation. And this is the two witnesses are killed here. Witnesses. This is what a witness is. A real witness. Not a fake witness. Not a pretend witness. Do not use the word witness without using it properly. It is a biblical foundation stone. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. They haven't been killable up to this point. They've tried to kill them, but now they can't kill them. It's on the board. Sign of Jonah. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Oh, great city. Which is spiritually, spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. This is Jerusalem, where also our Lord was crucified, in case you were wondering. Why does he call it Sodom and Egypt? That takes us to Ezekiel. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Oh, my gosh. How long was Lazarus in the tomb? He was four. Christ was three. Now I have the third sign, the two witnesses. And they are three and a half. I'll help you. Four plus three is what? Seven. Seven's a really cool number. All sevens go back to the first sevens. Three and a half is what? Half of seven. It's not ten and a half, in case you were continuing to add. It's a more complicated equation than that. Two witnesses, half of seven, two three and a halves. Did it shut off? Three and a half days. And not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Okay. Things are changing. No caves here. No graves here. But there wasn't one with uh, Jonah either. There was a fish. But that's kind of a cave, so we'll call it, excuse me, a cave. These don't have a cave. Their dead bodies are not put into, into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth and could not be killed. I added that part. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Now, remember, God breathed on his disciples. So we have Christ breathing the Holy Spirit. I asked that last week. How much does it take to breathe the Holy Spirit? How big is the Holy Spirit? How much does he weigh? The breath of life from God enters them, just as the breath of life from God entered Lazarus and the breath of life from God entered Jonah. 
The breath of life is Christ. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Great fear. And they heard a loud voice. There's our loud voice again from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Didn't hear about it. Saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. Here we go. And a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Notice the come up here, loud voice, compare Revelation 4.1. I'm rushing now. Notice the three and a half days. Notice the nation. Notice the great city, Jerusalem. Notice the earthquake. Notice the breath of life from God. The enemy saw them rise. 7,000 were killed. What's the obvious question here? Who are these guys? Who are these 7,000 that are dead now? Just any old people, just accident, I just pick a few. It's just a specific group of people that are killed. What do you think they are? Just happen to be 7,000? No, we got, we got 6,992. We need eight more. Okay, you, 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 you're dead too. Who are these 7,000 and why are they dead? Why are they there? They're obviously there. How were they killed? In the earthquake? That's what it says. How were they killed in the earthquake? Can I find this someplace else? Is there a new Old Testament compliment? I think so. Maybe we'll have to look. But the rest, this is my favorite part, and I think the most important part, though all of it is important, don't use my subjective opinion, but the rest feared and gave glory to the breath of life, the God of Israel. Who are the rest? So figure out who the 7,000 are, and then figure out who are the rest. How many are the rest? Next week. We'll figure it out. It's now pizza time.